Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, even you. Not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, now maybe you can see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow They have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. Welcome to How She Really Does It, a place where inspiration and possibility meet. Frequent guest Brene Brown has called Dr. Kristen Neff's research as powerful and her ability to explain how self-compassion affects our everyday lives makes her book, Self-Compassion, a transformative read. Kristen and I will discuss self-compassion and learn what it really is and why you may have such a hard time being self-compassionate with yourself. Kristen, hello and welcome to my show. Ah, oh, hello. I'm so happy to be here. So this this idea of self-compassion, um, first off, I think you have a really fascinating journey because so often what I find and what my listeners tell me is that they really feel like, oh, well, you know, of course, Dr. Neff has it together and she must have always <laughs> had it together, right? And, and your journey's um, contrary to that. So do you mind sharing that with my listeners? Yeah, well, for me, the the my journey of self compassion is completely a personal one. I I practiced it because I needed it so much. <laughs> you know, um, actually, I first learned about self compassion my last year in graduate school at Berkeley, and I had uh, just gotten a divorce, and it was a very messy divorce, and my ex husband was very angry at me, and. I was under a lot of stress, and I was a bit of an emotional basket case. (laughs) So I thought I would learn to meditate, you know, thinking that meditation would be good for cultivating a more calm and peaceful frame of mind. Um, And the very first night, I went to a local Buddhist group in Berkeley. The woman leading the group talked about the importance of having compassion for yourself, of opening your heart to yourself, not just to others. And it was such a powerful message. It was exactly what I needed at that time because I was judging myself and putting myself under extra stress. And I just decided from that moment on I was going to try to be more kind and supportive like a good friend to myself. And I saw the changes almost immediately. 
you know, I didn't become perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what happened is I started, especially over time with intentional practice, I started developing this capacity to be there for myself when I needed it. And it's it's really gotten me through a lot of tough times. It still does. And so when you say you saw the changes immediately, can you say more about that? Well, I think the, the amazing thing about self-compassion is, yes, we most of us are in the habit of self-criticism. And I think many people feel like they're just stuck there. And even if they wanted to be self-compassionate, they couldn't be. But the truth is, most of us, and I have to say women especially, we really do know how to be a good, supportive, compassionate friend because we have so much experience being that way for others, our friends, our, our family members, our partners. And it's amazing how quickly the shift with self-compassion can come if you just give yourself permission to treat yourself the same way you're used to treating your close friends. And so the moment I started you know, letting go of the self-critical voice or at least adding to it another voice of uh, a kind, caring, compassionate person who realized I was going through a tough time and I would say supportive things to myself, um, I I started doing things like giving myself little hugs and <laughs> little squeezes, just like I would to, again, a good friend I cared about. I was surprised how quickly it changed my frame of mind. Um, again, it didn't, it didn't make, make me a perfect person or um, less reactive even necessarily, but that resource was already there. I just had to call it up, which is what I think surprised me is how quickly it was able to make a shift. It's really that giving yourself permission that you are allowed to be kind to yourself. I think most of us think at some level we don't deserve it or we aren't supposed to, or especially as a woman, we should be focused on others. And the moment you realize self-compassion is not a selfish act, but you're just opening your heart. And once your heart's open, it's open. Then it, it flows a lot more easily than people might suspect. That was my experience anyway, and other people's as well that I've taught since then. I love that. Self-compassion is not a selfish act. <laughs> I hope all women really hear that. Because don't you find that women think that if they're self-compassionate, that is selfish? Yeah, they do. And, and we've kind of been told that. I think especially as women, I, one of the ways that historically women have been controlled or at least, um, you know, put into the place of always meeting other people's needs, especially our husbands, is by this idea that if we're good to ourselves, we're being selfish. But in fact, what we find, and the research is really bearing this out, that when you calm and soothe yourself and you're upset or scared or feeling inadequate in some way, if you can provide that emotional resource to yourself, as I said, to, to really keep your heart open, which is what it's about, being able to be present and uh, loving and connected with yourself, with your own experience, when you are in a present, loving, and connected frame of mind, that's also immediately available to others. And people are better relationship partners. They can respond more to other people's needs because they've cultivated that mindset in themselves. Um, so it's, it's not like when you're kind to yourself, therefore you don't care about others. That would be something more like self-indulgence or it would look quite different. Um, and we can talk a little bit more in detail later if you want about how self-compassion is different than something like self-pity or self-indulgence. But the type of open-hearted connection with yourself that I'm talking about really facilitates relationships with others. 
Well, and that brings me to um, Brene Brown and I spent an hour a couple of years ago talking about your ability to love other people is directly correlated mm-hmm. to your ability to love yourself. And it sounds like I'm hearing the same message from you. Your ability to have compassion for yourself can allow great compassion for other people. Yeah. Now, now I would say that I would put a caveat to okay. that in that um, there are a lot of people, and again, women especially, women tend to be a little less self-compassionate than men, then they uh-huh. tend to be a little more compassionate to others than men. So the discrepancy between how women treat themselves and others is, is quite large. Um, and there are people who are good, loving, compassionate people who are very hard on themselves. So I don't want to say that just because you're self-critical um, that you aren't compassionate to others, which a lot of women will just take one more thing to beat themselves up about, right? Um, and in fact, the research shows that, uh, and there's a little a bit of a developmental trend, in, in the college years, there's actually no relationship between how people treat themselves and others in terms of how um, caring and empathetic they are. As you get older, there's a stronger relationship. But there are, you know, I've met so many people, especially in the workshops I teach, people who are just, for instance, there was a pediatric oncologist, you know, her her job was helping children dying of cancer, and she was the most lovely, caring, compassionate woman, and especially because of some of her early history, she was very hard on herself. So I wouldn't want to say that she wasn't compassionate, but what, what happens when you give yourself compassion is, A, you're able to sustain the compassion for others much mm-hmm. longer. You're, you're less likely to suffer from burnout. So it's a great practice for caregivers because you're recharging your batteries. But w- what we also show in the research is that when you, when you start being more self-compassionate, you deepen um, your compassion for others. You become even more compassionate for others. Your heart becomes even more capable of giving. So, um, you know, it is possible to be kind to others and not kind to yourself. And I think actually that's the way most people are, especially women. But when you deepen the practice for yourself, you, you just open up a whole new vista of uh, sustainable giving to others. Is that because um, just, I don't know the word, your mindset or your energy starts to shift as well because you just see things in a more loving way. You're, you're in a more loving way. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you can give yourself what you need in the moment, oh, so this is a really good example. You're fighting with your partner, okay? You're mm-hmm. having a fight. And of course, you want to hear from your partner those those words that will make <laughs> you feel validated and comforted. Your partner wants to hear those words that makes you know him or her feel validated and comforted. <laughs> and, you know, not good luck, right? Because each one is looking for the other, which at the end of the day, you really have to give that to yourself. So if you can give that to yourself, if you can say when you're in a conflict or any struggle, if you can give yourself what you need, which is, again, validation, really listening to your own emotions, um, uh, uh, being authentic, uh, not trying to shut yourself down, but listening deeply to what this part of yourself has to say, and then comfort and soothe and respond with kindness and care then that puts you in a, a frame of mind that allows you to then, then you can listen to the other person, right? Because mm-hmm. you're, you're in a calm state of mind. And, you know, it also works at a, at a physiological level in that we know so much more about the mirror neuron system and how when we're in interaction with others, their emotions, we actually register them unconsciously in our, in our neur- neurons or mirror neurons. So if you're really angry, I'm feeling angry, or if you're in pain, even physical pain, the pain centers of my brain light up. So that means that if I'm upset and agitated, 
if I can calm and soothe myself and put myself in a loving, connected frame of mind, your mirror neurons will start picking up on my state. So I can even I can even start influencing you at the subconscious level, and then you can start creating an upward upward spiral of relationship interactions. So. Um, you know, our mindset is communicated to others. Others pick up on it um, at the unconscious level as well as how we talk and our, our tone and everything. So it really, it really does spread. It's amazing. I still love this conversation. So, so that goes to um, some. Sometimes people think that oh well, if I'm angry and I just don't say anything, they won't know. But what you've just described is the research that shows how that's not necessarily true. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you had someone say, who close to, you know, why are you so upset? What do you mean? I'm not upset. <laughs> why are you upset? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Usually people, those, those who know us um, can read us, and that's because their mirror neurons are picking up on it. And it changes our, our subtle tone of voice, what we choose to say or not say, what we notice, what we don't notice. Um, and one of the main features of compassion, uh, the way I define it, is the sense of interconnectedness of common humanity. Compassion isn't about me and it's not about you. Compassion is really opening to the fact of life, which is the human experience is imperfect. It entails suffering. This is something we all share. So when we op- when I open to my that fact with myself, that yes, I failed or I, you know, this is, difficult, but this is part of the shared human experience, so I don't have to feel so isolated or abnormal because of it, then when I remember that, then immediately I'm connected to you because you're a human being too. Uh, And that's part of what, ironically, when you're being self-compassionate, you're much less self-focused than you are when you're being self-critical. When I'm being self-critical, I'm not thinking about you or the shared human condition. I'm just thinking about me, 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 my flawed self. It's a very egocentric, narrow mindset, self-criticism. And so when you open up to compassion, which really is just you're just including yourself in the circle of compassion. It's not like you're focusing on yourself to the exclusion of others. You're just opening the, the circle to include yourself. Then, you know, already you're in this connected mind state that's, um, you know, that facilitates relationship. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. So, Kristen, what I'm understanding is that when we are in this self-compassion place, what happens is that it really it opens us up to connect yeah. with other humans. But when we get into self-criticism, we wind up having this tunnel vision about whatever our flaws or our mistakes were. And then we, we kind of don't see other things that are going on because we're too busy in this tunnel vision. Absolutely. So what happens with self-criticism, we, we have some good research um, you know, evidence for this, is um, you are tapping into the body's threat defense system. This is the reptilian brain. Uh, so evolutionarily, when there was a threat to ourselves, a lion was in the grass or something, um, our attention narrows, it gets very narrowed and, and focused on the problem because you only want to look at that problem and nothing else to escape the danger. Your amygdala gets triggered. You release cortisol and adrenaline that prepares you for the fight or flight response. Okay, very useful mm-hmm. system for escaping from alligators and lions. But in modern times, we have, many, thank God, many fewer physical threats to our existence. But we are so lost in our thoughts, especially our thoughts about ourselves, that any threat to our self-concept 
feels like an actual visceral threat and our body reacts the same way. So if I make a mistake or blow it or get rejected, it feels as if my body is actually being attacked because my sense of self feels so threatened. And then so what happens? I go into fight or flight mode and I attack the problem. Now, unfortunately, in this case, the problem is myself. <laughs> so I attack myself, but all these physiological process of, of processes of cortisol and adrenaline are being released. That's why it's so painful. That's why your, your, your vision narrows. Um, and that's why almost inevitably, if you're very self-critical, you will become depressed because your system can't handle the constant arousal and it will shut down by being depressed, right? What happens when you give yourself compassion is you uh, tap into another system we have, which is uh, another evolved system, which is the mammalian caregiving system. The, re the reason that mammals are different than reptiles is that mammalian young are, are born very immature. So we are all, all of us are born with a physiology that allows us to be soothed and comforted and calmed and made to feel safe when we're in the presence of warmth, physical warmth and tenderness. Just imagine like a mommy lion and her, her cub purring and kind of the, the gentle <laughs> physical uh, warmth and little cuddles. Uh, so that when we give ourselves compassion, we use a soft, caring tone of voice with ourselves. That's why I also encourage people to maybe put their hands on their heart or give themselves a little affectionate hug. We are deactivating um, the system, the sympathetic nervous system, the arousal. We lower our cortisol levels and we release oxytocin and opiates, which are part of the caregiving system, and we calm ourselves down and soothe ourselves. Again, this happens all at the unconscious level. Um, so we are uh, quite literally uh, changing the way we relate physiologically even to our circumstances by giving ourselves compassion. And then just one last point. I know this is a soliloquy, sorry, but compassion is a positive emotion. And what we know through evolution is that negative emotions, threats, narrow our focus, but positive emotions broaden our focus. They allow us to say, oh, wow, that's not a threat. Oh, is that fresh water over there? Are those berries edible? And so when we give ourselves compassion, we are generating a positive emotion, love and kindness in response to suffering, and that broadens our focus. And that's one of the reasons we get so much resilience and we get so much insight and, and depth when we're in a compassionate frame of mind because we can get out of that narrow focus and see the big picture. So it sounds like that compassion is an important piece of when we do face a problem to be compassionate so we can really be resourceful and use our resourceful resources and have more of an agile mind to maybe come Ab up with a solution. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredibly powerful that way. Yeah, it's not just emotionally making yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. It actually does allow you to disengage from those processes that narrow your focus and rumination and allows you to see the bigger picture and make better decisions, um, cope better with stress. Uh, lots of research now showing that self-compassion helps people cope with very difficult situations. So, um, so, Kristen, why is it so difficult for people to be self-compassionate to themselves? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I do think that our culture doesn't encourage self-compassion. Uh, I think our culture tells us we should be hard on ourselves. Um, th th there's a lot of reasons. I mean, for some people in particular, it's early childhood experiences. If you had the experience of very critical caregivers or people in your life that tried to control you by judging you and criticizing you, oftentimes we internalize those voices. 
and um, you know, we think that we are keeping ourselves in line, keeping ourselves in check, keeping ourselves out of trouble by criticizing ourselves before other people have a chance to do it to us. So a lot of people, that's the pathway it, it, it comes. But even people, for instance, my mother wasn't particularly critical, and I still developed a lot of these voices. I think our, our culture, especially Western culture, is so competitive that uh, we really believe that we need to be self-critical to motivate ourselves. And I'm not sure exactly where this belief comes from, but in the research we find this is the number one block people have to self-criticism. They think they need to be hard on themselves to be motivated, and if they're kind to themselves, they'll be lazy slops, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know, and it's it's so funny because, well, first of all, the research is showing exactly the opposite. Self-criticism puts you in a very poor frame of mind to do your best. When you're agitated and stressed and you doubt yourself, you become afraid of failure. It's really not, you know, and eventually you become depressed. It's not a great motivational mindset. Um, I, I find this really easy to explain to people if you use the example of a parent. So let's say a parent wants to motivate their child. Okay, mm-hmm. you've got two choices, criticism or compassion. Criticism would be, um, your child comes home from high school with a failing math grade, and you say, I'm ashamed of you. You're worthless nothing. You'll never amount to anything. <laughs> you know, that's one way to motivate the child. Is that going to work? Well, I mean, yeah, the child maybe will try a little harder, but the child will probably drop math the first chance again mm-hmm. because it's just too risky. Or the parent says, oh, man, I'm so sorry. You must be really bummed about getting that that poor grade. Um, I love you anyway. I am here for you. But, you know, I know you want to get good math grades so you can go to college. How can I support and encourage you? And loving acceptance plus support and encouragement, which might even mean, hey, listen, we got to cut down the hours on Nintendo. you got to do more homework because I love you and I care about you and I want you to thrive so we need to get your grades up. So it might even be fairly strict, the response of the parent. But with loving encouragement, that child's going to believe in themselves. They're going to be motivated to try. It's going to be so much more effective. And the research shows it's the exact same with ourselves, exact same things with ourselves. Self-compassion is a much more effective motivator for change than self-criticism is. Um, But our our culture doesn't tell us that. Um, The reasons for that, I'm not exactly sure why. I just know that that's the case. So you you see patterns and you see evidence, right, of what's working. Yeah. Uh, So it sounds like, I mean, one of the things that keeps coming to my mind is that, um, and being a former person that was very critical of myself, and that was part of my family of origin, right, because that was a great way to control me and get me to do what my parents wanted me to do with great intentions. It was always about the idea of helping me succeed. And, um, and, but it, and it was, I, I used to be, this person was like, okay, I can fix it. I can make this happen. And yeah. what my personal experience with compassion and, and really trying to practice it in my life is that I don't have to fix. I can be, I can kind of do, I, I can be and things yeah. ev- evolve. And, and I not, I can't articulate this. It's, it's it's a difference of like this using all this energy to like make it happen. It's like I'm going to make that square peg fit in that round circle, and That's then right. but when I'm compassionate, it becomes a square circle and it goes in. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a, you've also tapped into another very big reason why people are self-critical is that it's, it provides the illusion of control. Yes. And that, you know, when you, when you beat yourself up and say, you shouldn't have done that, you really, although it's painful to hear that, you're reinforcing the illusion that you could have possibly been perfect if you had just tried hard enough. <laughs> you think about it, right? It's like perfection is possible if you just get your shit together, you know, basically. <laughs> But it's, you know, is it true? Is perfection possible? Of course it's not. You know, we, we have we have some influence. It's not like we don't have any influence, but we aren't in control because life is way too complex and complicated and interconnected for us, to, us as single individuals to do much of anything other than do our best and influence things the same way. You know, so and, and I've completely seen what you're talking about, that when you give up control, you give up control, but you don't give up your intention. You still have your intention set to do your best. And if your heart's in the right place and your mind's in the right place, then things come together more easily to at least, you know, maximize your chances of doing well. Yeah, I, I think that if I had to have this conversation with you 10 years ago, I would have really struggled with it because my idea mm -hmm. was I have to fix this, right, okay. from a self-critical place. And so a lot of energy would be used. And, and I think that fixing is that controlling sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And whereas when I'm compassionate, then I can... There's a lot of different possibilities to figure out how to make this next step work. And it's it's interesting because I notice my energy levels are less when I go into that compassionate place. Mm. And, and, and what I explain to people is that compassion doesn't mean that I sit on the couch and eat bonbons and watch TV. Of course not. You know, it's it's just not, I guess, going into that fight or flight, right? That reptilian brain. Because I think that, right. I think the fixing, and please tell me where I could be wrong on this. I think the fixing comes from that reptilian brain. It's my way of reacting. Yeah, exactly. It's it's fear based. There's a problem. I got to attack the problem. I got to fix it. I got to get rid of the problem. Um, whereas you know the going into the mammalian caregiving system, it's all about nurturing, and really that's what. So compassion does evoke change, but from a place of nurturing. It's like it, it provides the rain and the fertile soil and the sunshine. You still can't make a tree grow, uh -huh. right? You can't control <laughs> it, right? But you can provide the optimal conditions that make it the most likely that tree will grow. And that's what compassion does is you're just really providing all the, the you're providing the optimal conditions for growth to occur. Um, whereas with self-criticism, you're really providing very poor conditions for growth to occur. Uh, and you know, it's it just and it's a lot less painful too. <laughs> but also, the other thing I say to people about this is compassion can sometimes be fierce. There's there's this idea that compassion has to be soft and wimpy. But look at Martin Luther King. Look at Gandhi. You know, look at Nelson Mandela. Some of uh, Mother Teresa. Some of the greatest leaders in history that were the most powerful, strong, forceful agents for change were coming from a place of compassion. Because when compassion sees suffering, compassion says, this is not okay. And that voice can be very strong and very powerful and very fierce, but it never cuts anyone out of its heart, which is, what which is actually part of what makes it so strong and resilient, such a good force for change. Oh, I just have chills up and down my body as you're talking about that. <laughs> Yeah, because isn't don't people look at compassion as kind of weak and um, uh, passive? Yeah, exactly. It's not passive at all because compassion is 
concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So when compassion meets suffering, it does everything it can to alleviate that suffering. Um, but it just, it's just the way it does it is through um, kindness and through, it still includes this common connect, uh, common humanity, this connectedness, and with a real sense of presence, which allows you to make much more effective change, much more effective decisions, not to be so reactive and make poor decisions. Um, and also with self-indulgence, I, I also give this example for uh, of parents, which makes it so easy. Would a compassionate mother say to her child, oh, yes, darling, you want to eat the whole entire tub of Ben and Jerry's? Go ahead, sweetheart. <laughs> oh, you don't feel like going to school today? Oh, sweetie pie, you know, don't go to school. That's not a compassionate mother. That's an adopted <laughs> mother. You know, a compassionate mother says, eat your vegetables. Go to bed on time. You know, that's because I love you. And I'm not going to allow you to harm yourself by doing these self-indulgent behaviors. And that's exactly the same with self-compassion. Self-indulgence harms yourself. Self-compassion says, hey, I love myself. I don't want to harm myself. I don't want to suffer. I want to make a change because I don't want to suffer. Don't you see compassionate people have boundaries? Oh, of course. Yeah, you, you, of course. <laughs> that wouldn't be a compassionate if you didn't have boundaries, right? That mm-hmm. would that would be harming yourself if you didn't. But the way you hold the boundaries is different, right? It's like you might have a boundary, but it doesn't mean you have to cut that other person out of humanity and say, they, you are evil or, you know, <laughs> I hate you or you shouldn't do that. It's more like, no, really, this is what I need. And I'm going to be very firm about it. But you can do that in a loving, kind way. Um Again, the example of someone like Gandhi did it beautifully. And what about, Kristen, what about the people that have either wronged you or you are so mad at? And <laughs> right, you, I mean, yeah. how do yeah. you provide compassion? Like, we'll just, we'll do it this way. We'll, we'll put something concrete, like to a former spouse. How do you provide compassion to that? How do you provide a compassion yeah. to a former spouse? Do you mean, well, and then also, um, do you mean in terms of uh, what you say and how you act, or do you mean more internally? Because I think sometimes compassion happens more on the internal level. Like, let's mm-hmm. say I'm really, really deeply angry at someone. Mm-hmm. I find the most compassionate thing I can do for myself is to fully validate that anger and really listen to it, try to find the wisdom in it. Um, allow myself to fully express it internally (laughs) in my own mind to that voice is, oh, you aren't supposed to be angry, to say, no, actually, um, I am angry and I'm going to fully validate this reaction, but not necessarily to express all those angry thoughts to the other person. Mm -hmm. Maybe being compassionate to yourself means fully allowing whatever emotions you have of anger and rage and injustice. And then when you interact the other person trying to be wiser about well what's going to be helpful here what's going to help the other person um and i i do think that when you've been hurt by someone you have to really have compassion for yourself and your own feelings of hurt and validate that before jumping to expressing compassion for the other i think that can be a bypass like a spiritual Mm. bypass you know oh i forgive you i have compassion for you and inside you're still raging um, but it's, um, it's it's too painful for you to feel that internal rage. You just try to get rid of it by pretending you forgive the other person even when you don't. Um, but when you can meet your own needs and comfort and soothe yourself and validate your own pain, 
then you kind of have more, you've taken more personal responsibility for your own mindset. And that gives you more resources to then try to be, be compassionate to the other. But that also might mean compassionately saying, I'm sorry, I, I just can't speak to you. It's too painful for me right now, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, but you don't know what to say, and then you're an asshole because of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> got some choices. Mm-hmm. So, so when somebody, when you feel, when you believe that somebody has wronged you, so whether it's a former spouse, a friend, a family member, right? Yeah. Somebody that's on your inner circle and you feel very wrong. The first place to go is internally and provide compassion for yourself. Like, yes, I feel hurt or yes, I feel wronged or I'm angry and and yeah. really sit with that. And when you say, um, fully allow whatever emotions you don't mean to react to them but it you mean to really feel that anger or feel that feeling inside of you exactly inside of you one of my favorite self-compassion phrases i say to myself is because it's a way of fully accepting what you're feeling while also expressing compassion is i'm so sorry you're feeling this right now so like i might say i am so sorry you're feeling so hurt and angry. So it's like you're fully allowing yourself to feel hurt and angry, but you're also expressing compassion for the fact that I wish it weren't so. And, you know, and that sometimes the compassionate voice is, this should not have happened. I'm so sorry this happened. This should not have happened. So you, you can be, you can be fully validating the fact that this was an injustice that should not have happened. And then when you react to that, you know, once you've really given yourself what you need, which, you know, good luck getting from the other person. Apologies from other people are beautiful when they happen, but you can't control them much, right? Then when you talk to the other person, you aren't dependent on hearing that from them. And therefore, you've got more choices in, in terms of how you express yourself. Um, now, now, listen, I'm saying this. It's not. This is the ideal. It's not like it, you know, don't, don't, don't be listening to this and think, oh, Kristen, she's all, she never reacts. But I, I can write about in this, my, in my book, I still get reactive. I actually have, I've made some, some progress even since writing that book. I've really, really tried to deepen this practice of being compassionate toward myself when I have reactive emotions come up internally. And it, it has made a shift, mm-hmm. but it still happens. Um, so, which is why self-compassion is great because then you can have compassion for the fact that you were just reactive and blurted something out that you mm-hmm. regret. But ideally, I actually have had it happen successfully where I give myself what I need before that happens and then I am able to pause and not say that thing that's going to just make it so much worse. Well, and it sounds like when you, I mean, and for one is I thank you for clarifying that and saying that you too, right, you're not perfect with this process. No, no. Work in progress like everyone else. (laughs) And I think that's great. And I love, you know, your personal journey of how you came to study this and make this your life work um, because it gives the listeners out there hope of, oh, it's not that I have to be perfect or, oh, yet another thing that I don't do well, right? We are all works in progress and we are all learning how to practice this. And, And when you are in that compassionate place, the term that you use is being mindful. So it sounds like being compassionate allows you to be mindful. So and yeah, then, mindful is one of the core components of, of compassion. It's, it's like a, it's the ground of it. It's being with what is as it is. Yeah. And, and that can help you, I guess, reevaluate the next time maybe you come across this person that's wronged you and go, oh, well, last time I blew up at them and how did I feel afterwards or what happened? 
And how do I want, you know, how can I take care of myself this time so that I don't have to have, you know, a lot of times when we blow up at people and we really, you know, I used to do this, I'd have vengeful anger and Mm. I would do it and I feel powerful in that moment. And then I would just be filled with regret and remorse. And then I just beat myself up, you know, for, for weeks or months. And I walk around in shame and probably, you know, try never to see that person again. Yeah. 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 No. Um. That's right. So, so it in, inspires us and it helps. But uh, there's a great medita- uh, meditation teacher named Rob Narn who has this saying: "The goal of practice is to become a compassionate mess." <laughs> right. So that, in the sense that, uh, or even Freud said, um, uh, you know, the, the the purpose is not to uh, eliminate our neuroses, but to become in accord with them. So we will never be perfect, and we still have our patterns, and we come by our patterns very honestly. Most of us, if we could get rid of our patterns by snapping our fingers, we would have like 10 years ago. (laughs) There's a reason they're there, often childhood history or even genetics, you know, or biochemistry. Um, But if we can embrace that with compassion, it, it is true that sometimes we are able to catch ourselves before saying that thing that really gets us in trouble but even when we don't we can still hold that with compassion so we stop this cycle of just you know making things worse and worse and worse and worse compassion can come in at any moment even after the fifth iteration of reactivity you can say oh i see oh yeah i remember can i have compassion for the fact that i've just had five rounds of reactivity with my partner and you can just start there you can start wherever you are um, which was that? I think that was Emma Children, start where you are. Um, and that's really the point. Any moment of compassion is what you're looking for. You aren't really looking for perfection. You're looking towards holding whatever your experience is in the moment with compassion. And that doesn't require perfection. Mm-hmm. So going back to this, this grudge or this person that's um, – people can be mad at, right? Really feel that they've been betrayed by. I just want to go through this process for the listeners out there. First, you go in internally, you validate the emotion, um, you really experience it. And then after that, you notice what would be helpful. Instead of reacting to the emotion, what would be helpful? And, And then if you have to interact with the person, what's the next thing to do? Oh, you mean like while while you're interacting? Well, with so them? maybe I mean sometimes it could be possibly an email comes through, right? And so right. that's great because mm-hmm. now you've got the space and not mm-hmm. have to like mm-hmm. some of us sometimes make the mistake of responding right away, but you can have the space to ground yourself on yeah. an email. Now sometimes yeah. you may be face to face, but right. even if you know yeah. that this is a person that you felt betrayed by, you yeah. can you're you can probably do some of these steps before even interacting with them. And there's so many people, right, whether they felt hurt by a, a former spouse, a current spouse or partner, a family member, um, you know, mm-hmm. a colleague mm-hmm. at work, a, you know, an employer who's all of a sudden let them go after many years of great service, right? Yes. So how do, what's the next step? So once we've become grounded oh. in compassion, what's the next step when we have to interact with that person? Right. Well, first of all, when you interact with that person... You still you need to be giving yourself a lot of compassion as you're doing it. Um, I, I teach people uh, the surreptitious self hug, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is when you fold your arms, <laughs> and the other person doesn't know you're doing this. But if you fold your arms and like you give yourself a little squeeze, and you're just really you know, let's say you're interacting with your boss who fired you or your, your ex spouse or something, and just internally 
as you're doing it, just saying, this is so hard right now, I'm so sorry, this is so difficult, and just validating, again, how difficult it is, validating your pain, letting yourself know that you're there for yourself, you know, I'm, I'm here, I even say things like that to me, I'm here for you, sweetheart, you know, I, I'm here for you, I got your back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm a mother, and I tend to use sappy language with my son, so I can be a bit sappy with myself, that doesn't work for everyone, but whatever language feels kind of supportive in the actual interaction, um, and then I think I think the key is letting go of attachment to wanting the other person to say what you want them to hear because, you know, again, it may or may not happen. It's really nice when it does, but so, you know, so often that person has their issues and their problems and their triggers and they're putting fires out and we have so little control uh, over them and what they're able to do or not do. So really get asking, what do I need? Realizing the other person is very unlikely to be able to give me what I need. So can I give that to myself? And then from that point, doing your best. Um, and, and in terms of having compassion for the other person, I, I you know, I suppose I don't want to like act like an expert or mm-hmm. <laughs> even give recommendations, but from my own experience, I find that that comes naturally when I can put myself in a loving, compassionate frame of mind in relation to myself. The compassion for the other person kind of emerges naturally from this open-hearted space that I'm in, I've cultivated. Mm-hmm. If I try to think I should be compassionate to this person, it often doesn't work or I kind of resent it or there's a way in which I'm not validating my feeling. And it, I don't know, it doesn't seem to work as well if I try to force compassion for the other person. Um, oh, you can do things like, you know, especially with the spouse, you usually know their triggers and you know why their button was pushed and you can try to think about all the all the causes and conditions that may have led them to be acting that way and, and you, can, you can also try to actively cultivate some compassion for them. It's a lot easier though once you've done that for yourself, I mm-hmm. find. Um, but yeah, so, so when you're so when you're writing the email, just the, the more calm and grounded and centered you are, it just will flow more naturally. Um, and, like I, I was saying in my book, and you can become really good at apologizing. I'm really good at apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten better over the years, but I am one of those people that tends to just send the email. You know, that's where that's my growth edge. But mm-hmm. then almost immediately, instead of walking around with shame and self-criticism and avoiding the person, I almost immediately, within, even, within, even within five minutes, oh, I'm really sorry. I was really reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, I apologize. And then, then you can kind of let it go and move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's step number two when you fail at step number one. <laughs> Well, and, and to, to realize that, you know, okay, you did that, right? You reacted and that, okay, even immediately, if you send an apology email or you make it, you know, you apologize that that can help lessen this load of regret and remorse that you carry around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in a weird way, um, some, you know, hopefully a lot of people respond fairly well to that, uh, especially if they know it's genuine and not manipulative. Mm-hmm. Well, most people are like, okay, well, they've been there and they could, they can, they don't have to then build up a whole huge storyline of, of hurt and anger because you've almost immediately apologized and then they, oh, okay, well, I see, I can see that, how that happened or something like that. They don't have to take it personally. You know, that's the thing, not taking it personally. 
both your own reaction and the other person. I know it sounds funny, but we don't need to take ourselves that personally. And that's one of the freedoms that self-compassion gives you because these are just these patterns that have developed and arisen and come out of all these causes and conditions. We don't have to identify with them. Um, you know, we can just hold the whole process in compassion and watch it and do what we can. But like I say, most of us did not choose our particular patterns of reactivity. That's just kind of the way it happened. Um, well, isn't it that that's kind of what we learned from watching without somebody giving us a lesson plan that we watched that? I mean, for example, my life, right? I grew up with a lot of self-criticism and I thought that equated success because that was kind of what I was taught. That's right. Be self-critical because the intention is for you to be the best you possibly can be. So let's criticize. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it would spark that. Let me show you. I mean, if you think I'm, I'm not capable, let me show you inside of us. I just found that not to be long-term sustainable behavior on my end. I could react to it and it would get right. me jolted at first. But then after yeah. I'd be like, oh, that's just too much. You know, and I must say that sometimes there's some, it's not like you have to drop all aspects of that process. Mm -hmm. Some stress is good to motivate action. I mean, this, you know, adrenaline is useful. Having mm -hmm. some stress and responding to the stress. The problem with self-criticism is the negative global evaluation, self-evaluation. I am bad. I, you know, I'm a wrong person. I'm an incompetent person. I'm a failure. All that is really unhelpful and tends to undermine our belief in ourselves. But you could absolutely say, oh, what I did right there, that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I went wrong there. And this is really important. And I do want, it's not that you've got to show them to prove yourself, but I really want this. And I am not going to believe the messages you are giving me about me being incompetent. And you can be powerful and forceful about that, and you can be driven, mm -hmm. right? The drive system, that's actually um, a whole other physiological system that is uh, related to adrenaline. And it's actually a separate system. You can have, you can be very driven and still be compassionate. One doesn't negate the other. Right. Um, you've got the self. You've got the threat defense system with self criticism. You have the incentive drive system, release adrenaline and energy to to solve problems, and then you've got the compassion soothing system. And uh, you can have compassion with drive, uh, absolutely. So you, you know, it might be it might be a matter of trying to just see well what aspects of this are useful. This drive, and I'm going to show them, or you know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to reach my goals, and I'm just going to myself that can be very very healthy and what part of it isn't healthy which is and I'm a failure and I'm no good and you know that that's the thing is trying to separate those things out keeping what's good and letting go of what's just undermining you and I have a question so when we tell ourselves oh I should be compassionate I should be self-compassionate or I should yeah. be compassionate <laughs> to other people I mean yeah. isn't that just self-criticism but hidden under the veil of compassion Oh, it can be. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's why I was trying to tell people when I talk about this, don't beat yourself up for beating yourself up in the vain hope that somehow it will keep yourself from beating yourself up, you know? Um, and it's not that we should be self-compassionate. Like, you know, we have to be, again, another way to be perfect. It's just that it, it's it's useful. It helps. It feels better. Um, so why not do it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, we don't have to criticize ourselves for habits of self-criticism. So what you just said about, well, it feels better to be compassionate. Why not do it? Do you think there's a correlation maybe with that along with why 
we think that self-criticism is better, especially for those of us that were told that we must suffer mm -hmm. to excel? Yeah, maybe so. I think that that's probably a good point that some people, because it feels good, compassion, it's mm -hmm. a positive emotion that uh, it can't be a, a powerful driving force. But uh, in fact, the, as I said before, the purpose of driving positive emotions is to allow you to look around and see opportunities and seize those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So uh, the negative focus actually limits your ability to problem solve, mm -hmm. ironically. Um, uh, the positive emotion helps. But yeah, it's just, um, it seems to be, now this is, this is where I don't, I don't have a lot of, data on this, so I'm going to be more just personal for my own personal practice. It feels like this natural state of being, when we're able to tap into our inner compassionate self and this inner compassionate connected presence, it feels very, very natural. Like it's like we're tapping into something that's already there and that we've been blocking and getting in the way of. And so when you open the door to that, to me at least, it doesn't feel like I'm doing something that I should be doing. It feels more like I'm getting out of the way. I'm, I'm not blocking anymore. This natural process is already there. Does that make sense? I think that would help explain the, the idea that fixing versus when you go into that compassionate place, mm -hmm. there's, it's just, it's a being and things do become fixed um but without you know uh like i let's go to something tangible when i was a student i used to think oh how do i measure how hard i worked at school well it would be measured by the number of hours i put in right mm. and so and i would sit there and study and study and if i couldn't get it i would work harder and i'd work harder versus now it's like i um I, I will learn, um, and sometimes I realize that maybe I need to walk away for a bit and then mm -hmm. come back because for, I can't see the problem and I can't see the solutions, mm -hmm. and, and it, it, it happens. Like I'm like, oh, you know, and I've had this happen with my website, something I was mm -hmm. trying to fix, 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 and I couldn't yeah. see it, and I kept doing it, couldn't see it. I got this real tunnel vision, perceptual blindness, and then um, when I stepped away, you know, became rested, nourished, whatever it was that I needed, right? And I came back to it. It was sitting right there. I mm -hmm. read the words, but it wasn't computing inside of me. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. that... Yeah, no, and, and there's, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to, this doesn't have to be a woo-woo thing, mm -hmm. um, in that our working memory space, a little space of conscious awareness is actually quite small. And our brains, and especially, um, and a lot of people are saying other parts of the body, including the vagus nerve, which is connected to the heart, we have a lot of ways of processing information that happen outside of that, you know, it's actually seven plus or minus two little bits of information we can hold in, in conscious memory, in conscious working awareness. And so that um, sometimes by stepping back and relaxing, I think other parts of our brain and system are able to work on problems outside of our conscious awareness and then it kind of pops up. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I think we can, sometimes we can get in the way of ourselves. 
I'm really good at that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> good. One more thing to be compassionate about. Isn't that great? Be so, be so, if we were perfect, what a bummer. We'd have nothing to be compassionate about. We wouldn't get that lovely feeling. <laughs> well, and if we were, you know, because I grew up with, with that need for perfection and that being yeah. told I had to be perfect. Um, but I, th- you know, I love the grooves in my life because those are the areas that I wind up learning and growing and um, just really flourishing in. And Absolutely. the areas that, you know, are kind of easier to come by. It's like, oh, okay, I, I don't really think much of it, but yeah. th- there's so much growth that comes from those grooves, those not perfect moments. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a total trite truism at this point, but so true about how failure is the best learning experience, right? Mm-hmm. So isn't it funny? And if you were to ask anyone, do you learn a lot from failures? They'd all say, of course you do. And yet at the moment, <laughs> we're failing. We aren't thinking that, are we? Um, <laughs> and, and that's because, again, we, we, we want to generalize that to ourselves, this global self-concept. I failed, and therefore I am the failure. When in fact, just because you failed doesn't mean you're a failure at all. It just means you have this experience that you can learn from. And ironically, it might make you smarter and stronger and more capable in the long run. So um, getting away of that sense of self. You know, a lot of my work has tried to contrast self-compassion with self-esteem. And the problem with self-esteem, with wanting to judge ourselves positively, is that any time we're making a global evaluation of ourselves, positive or negative, it's not really true. You know, uh-huh. we have strengths, we have weaknesses, we have good days, we have bad days, things happen, good, you know, we're successful, not so successful. So trying to stuff ourselves in a box, label good or bad, it's really a fool's errand. And um, even if you manage to try to have high self-esteem, you know, it's good, something's going to happen. You're going to see someone who's doing something better than you, and all of a sudden, instead of being special and above average, you're average, and you feel like a total failure, right? It's it's just this, this we need to, well, I would argue, it's really not that useful to try to globally evaluate yourself as good or bad. Rather, if you just your intention is to be kind to yourself and to learn and grow from all your experiences, that's all you need to thrive and be happy. Uh, the self-esteem game, at the end of the day, is a bit unwinnable. Uh, so is someone doing it better than you are. That- <laughs> except, except, you, except there's no one who does a better radio show than you. But other than that, <laughs> and there's no academic who's more brilliant than I am. But other than those two small exceptions, no. <laughs> so are you saying that self-esteem is a way of measuring that we are the best at whatever? Yeah. So part of it depends how you define self-esteem. But using mm-hmm. the definition of self-esteem as a global evaluation of self-worth, I am, you know, on a scale of one to five, how good am I basically? Uh, the problem is, is for most of us, we that evaluation is done through a process of social comparison. So in our society, it is not okay to be average. If I told you your radio show was average, or if you told me my work was average, we'd both be devastated. That's Mm -hmm. just the way it works, right? We all have to be special and above average to feel good about ourselves. So we're we're setting ourselves up from the get-go for failure because Mm -hmm. it's logically impossible for us all to be above average at the same time. So we we do all these weird machinations of trying to see ourselves as better than we are and trying to see others as worse as they are. But even when you are doing well, like maybe you're a model, but 
a supermodel, but there's another supermodel, but just got that contract, and all of a sudden you feel bad about yourself. When your when your sense of self worth is based on comparison with others, it is an unwinnable game, and you will fail because you are human. And so, um, when your self esteem, your sense of self worth is contingent on success, contingent on people liking you. Uh, for women, the number one domain in which we invest our self esteem is appearance. You know. And even if you're, even if you try hard, all the plastic surgery in the world, you're still going to get old. I mean, right? It's just, mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. Um, so we we spend so much of our time trying to judge ourselves positively when we could just let that all go, and put our energy in relating to ourselves kindly, and ironically, that will still give us what we need to thrive and be happy and to do our best. But we don't, we don't need to judge. We don't need to put ourselves in any sort of box. We can just be as we are and swimming in a sea of our own support and goodwill, and that will get us through. Well, so it sounds like with the self-esteem, it it triggers our comparisons, right? We compare ourselves with others, which then is going to trigger our self-criticism. That's right, because we don't measure up to others. Yeah. And also criticism of others as well. I mean, we can be pretty nasty. And a lot of that is because um, it feels good to put someone else down because then we feel a little good in comparison. And think about all the fights you have, like with your partner. A lot mm-hmm. of it is about, well, you said that, that makes, <laughs> that pricks my ego. So I say this and it pricks your ego. And these are just these two egos battling. Mm-hmm. Like each one trying to just feel good about themselves and not admit that they're flawed and perfect human beings. <laughs> so they won't judge themselves. Yeah, so, um, yeah, self-esteem. And also, uh, there's also an epidemic of narcissism in our society. Because so many children in the self-esteem movement in the 60s and 70s were told that they were special and above average and, you know, king for a day and you're wonderful, that so many people felt like, okay, I better take this seriously. And it's not, it's not, their, their psyches couldn't allow in the possibility that they might be average in some areas. They develop this grandiose narcissism, and, and narcissism levels are the highest they've ever recorded among today's college undergraduates, partly because of this. Um, so a, a lot of the pain in life comes from this need for self-esteem, this feeling that we aren't measuring up, that we aren't doing good enough, um, we aren't, you know, other people are doing it better. It's so tiring. It's such a tiring treadmill, and it's just with self-compassion, you really can get off the treadmill and say, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm just going to be kind to myself. <laughs> and it, it gives you what the research shows. We directly compare compare them head to head in research. Self-compassion offers all the benefits of self-esteem in terms of being, you know, emotionally resilient and less depressed, less anxious, better coping skills, um, happy, happiness, optimism. But it doesn't have the downsides of the social comparison, the narcissism. It's, it's not contingent on how you look. It's not contingent on success. And the sense of feeling good about yourself that goes with self-compassion is much more stable because you have it when you fail and when you succeed, whereas self-esteem really deserts you when you fail. So one of my, I guess, lines of argument in my work is that we should be encouraging kids to have self-compassion, not self-esteem. It'll give them what they need, but not set them up for failure the way the self-esteem game does. So I have a question. It sounds like self-esteem is a way, like if we have holes of not feeling good enough, right? We we strive for self-esteem to kind of fill it up. But with the self-compassion, you're already nurturing yourself and giving yourself that love and 
giving yourself that space, that container of uh, it's being an unconditional safe place to say, I am flawed. Here are my strengths. Today, this is what I did well at. And this is what, you know, I can improve on. And, and so that it sounds like self-compassion is a way more, it's a more, I don't know, sustainable way to fill that hole and really fill it versus when you're striving for self-esteem, right? Okay, I'm going to be the best radio talk show host ever. Well, there's always going to be somebody else that's striving too. And how yeah. do you really compare that? I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then it, what happens when you have that off day and all yeah. that? And then all of a sudden you're the worst radio show host ever in your mind, right? Even yeah. though other people don't think that. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of self-compassion is it is always available. It's available on your good days and it's available on your bad days. All you got to do to qualify for self-compassion is to be an imperfect human being. <laughs> you always qualify, you know, it, it doesn't desert you. Sometimes I think of it as like this little guardian angel on my shoulder. It's there precisely when I need it, where self-esteem is only, it's a, it's a fair weather friend, right? It's only there mm. when things are going well. So um, if I were to choose a friend, I'd choose self-compassion. <laughs> and, and, and like, and for right now with people in the current economic conditions, right? Mm, so it's their mm-hmm. self-esteem may be based on their title or how much money that they make. And then yeah. when they lose that, yeah. now there's that hole once again. But mm. if they if they have self if they have self-compassion and realize it's always available, it's not determined by mm. a title or how much they make. That's right. And they can be an imperfect person and they can they can have that place to nest in. It's kind of like, I guess, when you have, um, I mean, my goal is that in fa- my family is always have a place where my kids belong, right? Yeah. It's a safe, yeah. unconditional place where, you know, the world can go and beat them up, but they can come home and they know that they are loved because of who they are, not because of what they do or accomplish. That's right. That's right. And And the irony is, is when you give yourself that safe haven, you are going to be most likely to do your best and to reach your goals. You know, when you have that nurturing, constant support, then when an opportunity presents itself, instead of being paralyzed by fear or self-doubt, you'll be more able to see, see the, first of all, see the opportunity because you aren't just so focused on what you don't have, and then take advantage of it and do your best. You know, and it, it, it's, when something like the economic downturn, well, a lot of these things are out of our control. And there's only so much you can do, but you will maximize your chances of getting through it well with this kind, encouraging, supportive environment, rather than just saying, oh, I'm a failure. I'm not a VP anymore. I'm just a, you know, whatever it is you happen to be. Uh, really, It's really hard to go wrong with self-compassion. A lot of people say, well, is there a downside to self-compassion? And I don't put it this way. There are, we have other systems that uh, are in place that are also useful. So when that lion is chasing you, mm-hmm. at that moment, dive into your threat defense system and run like hell, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. When the lion is actually, when it's not just threat to your self-concept, when something's actually really harming you. But then when you're safe, tap into your self-compassion compassion system and give yourself what you need to um, you know, care for yourself and, and, and soothe yourself. Um, so it's not that self-compassion is ever the wrong choice. It's just that we don't want to say we only want self-compassion and all these other systems. They, they can be useful as well. But I, can't, I haven't discovered a situation. As long as the self-compassion is authentic. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you can, you can use anything in a, in a slightly twisted way. 
So you, you could start using self-compassion, and we, we really warn people this is one of the sayings of our, of our program is we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. And this is a really important one. Because self-compassion can make you feel good, if you aren't careful, you can use it as a subtle avoidance, um, type of avoidance, like, I really don't want to admit that I'm feeling bad, so I'm going to give myself compassion to make it go away. And then you subtly dropped into fix-it mode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then you say, oh, my God, it didn't work. I want my money back. Mm -hmm. It worked the first three times. Now I put my hand on my heart, and I still feel like crap. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's because you've gotten attached and you've got invested. You aren't opening your heart to what is. You're actually falling back into that, that habit of trying to control what is and trying to avoid our pain and avoid our suffering. So compassion is always, I'm so sorry you're feeling bad, and then sometimes that feeling bad gets better, and sometimes it doesn't, you know, just depending on what the causes are and what the situation is. So you always want to try to be authentic with the self-compassion, which is opening to the present moment, whatever it is, with a, with a loving heart, really, a loving, connected presence. Um, same thing with self-indulgence. You could say, oh, I'm just being self-compassionate. No, I really needed that fist massage this week. You know, you got to check in and be honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. so it sounds like not using self-compassion to control an outcome. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Or to avoid what is. or And also really asking yourself, what do I need? And sometimes what you need is to get off your ass and do something. Mm-hmm. And that's the compassionate response. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Compassion is not just about pleasure. Compassion is about being healthy and alleviating suffering. So you have to you have to be as honest and authentic as possible during the process, so that um, the outcome will be your health and well-being. Uh, but the mind's a tricky thing. So most people, you know, very common. You start practicing self-compassion and you go down these you know false alleyways at first, but then uh, usually it sorts itself out after a while. So the way I see self-compassion and and then like the reptilian brain is that, I mean, if we want to use a metaphor in the kitchen, which is funny because I don't cook, but, okay. <laughs> um, but is that self-compassion is like a tool that you use in the kitchen. And maybe it's one that you, you know, one of your favorite ones that you use, like for me, it's my, my AeroPress coffee maker. I use that every day. Uh-huh. It, right. And so that happens every day versus, you know, there are some other things that um, like a, a, a roasting pan, I use that only I use it for the first time actually this week because um, <laughs> I had to make a ham, which was kind of interesting since I don't cook, but, uh, uh, but like a small roasting pan, which maybe I don't use that often. And so what I hear you say is that self-compassion is a tool, but there's many tools in your kitchen or there's many different things to use in your life. It's not the only one. It's not the be all and end all, but it can be a powerful one that you can use daily. Yeah, well, and I think it's probably the one that is the most useful the most often, mm-hmm. right? And so what self-compassion can do is say, kind of step back for a moment and let this other process come forward, but also say, hey, this self-criticism isn't helping here. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes you need to be stressed. Sometimes mm-hmm. you need your sympathetic nervous system activated because there's a huge deadline and you got it, you know, that stress is useful. But that even even the stress can be held in the sense, if it's okay, I got your back, mm-hmm. as opposed to you stupid lame you should have started a week ago, which doesn't really help, right? <laughs> that just takes you down another path I know very you know? well. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've ever done that, but... Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kristen, thank you so much. Um, oh, do you want to just touch real quickly on the difference between self, uh, uh, pity? And, oh, yes. Cause you had mentioned yes. that earlier. Yes. Okay. So self pity is poor me. It's very mm -hmm. egocentric and it tends to exaggerate how bad the problem is because it's like you're so self-focused and narrowly focused. Self-compassion is this is the shared human experience. So it's not egocentric. And um, by opening your perspective to the shared human experience, it also gives you some balance and perspective and you realize, well, this is this is painful, but it's not, you know, other people actually are suffering worse. Not in a way to belittle what you're feeling, but also not to over exaggerate it. So self compassion is kind of opening to what is in a, a way that includes the experience of other people. Or self-pity is an egocentric way of just thinking about your own problems and, and forgetting that other people have problems that are a lot worse than yours. So it, it actually feels very, very different. Self-criticism is an inc it's incredibly egocentric. Self-criticism is as egocentric as self-pity. Um, and that, again, that's why that common humanity of, of self-compassion, that component is so important because you're always looking at the bigger picture. And that's what gives it balance and perspective. Okay. And then as we wrap up the show, do you have a couple of takeaways for people to practice self-compassion? Yeah. So um, as I said, I usually try to really encourage people to get comfortable with, if they can, giving themselves some physical gesture of kindness. Uh, what works for a lot of people is putting both hands over your heart and feeling the warmth of your hands. Um, but I, I also encourage people to experiment what feels really soothing and comforting. For some people, it's a hand on their stomach or maybe cradling their cheeks. Because even if your mind can't go to the place of self-compassion because it's full of the storyline of the failure or the fear or whatever, if you give yourself that physical gesture of compassion, you will tap into physiologically um, the mammalian caregiving system, reduce your cortisol and release oxytocin. And that often um, allows your body to relax and calm down and uh, soothe, be soothed enough to then open the doorway for some more self-compassionate language. And you might say something like, you know, I'm really sorry you're feeling this way. I'm here for you. And, you know, I understand. And whatever, whatever kind, caring, compassionate things you would say to a friend, then start saying that to yourself. Um, that that habit alone, we call it actually a self-compassion break. Uh, when you're under stress at any time, putting, giving a physical gesture of affection and then saying words to encourage self-compassion. Um, actually, I'll, I'll give you a set of words that we teach people. But uh, I, I say use your own, but one set of words that works really well is um, first acknowledging this is a moment of suffering. And that's just, that's just the mm -hmm. mindfulness, remembering ouch, this is really hard right now. This is a moment of suffering. And suffering is part of life. It's part of the shared human experience. So kind of normalizing it, not feeling you're abnormal or something's wrong. This is, this is part of life. And so may I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself what I need. And so saying phrases like that, just be mindful of the fact that you're suffering, remembering that this is part of the shared human experience and that what you need right now is kindness. You can, you can take that with you throughout the day. Uh, and um, we just did a, a, a research study on a program that we use to teach self-compassion and practices like that were as powerfully related to gains in self-compassion as things like formal sitting meditation. So, 
That is great. And Kristen, I will have links on my site to your book and your website. And also you have a self-compassion test on your website as well. So I'll put that all up on my website to great. direct to you. Thank you for being a guest on the show today. It's been oh, great. It was great fun. It was wonderful. Have me back anytime. I'd be happy to. Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> you are the best talk show host ever. You're not average. I promise. <laughs> well, thank you. 